standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this episode of The Sunday Chops. In this episode, you can hear a conversation I had with broadcaster and author Ashley Dotty Charles, she of Radio 1 Extra Breakfast Show fame, back in May. We chatted about Dotty's new book, Outraged, Why Everyone's Shouting and No One's Listening. We talked about the various characters she spoke to whilst writing this book, including Guys, Brace Yourself, Katie fucking Hopkins. Anyway, it's a fantastic book and I really, really enjoyed this chat, so I very much hope that you enjoy listening to it. I'm joined via Zoom by broadcaster and author of the new book, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking, Ashley Dotty Charles. Hello, Dotty. Hello. So when I saw that you'd written this book... I was instantly like, I want to talk to her about it because I think it's a fascinating subject, especially at the moment. I don't know if you've noticed, as we record this, obviously the book isn't out until July, but as we record this, we are in lockdown. Whether or not we will still be in lockdown in July remains to be seen. Um, God, I hope not. But I have noticed recently a sort of considerable, like Twitter's a mess at the moment. It's really, I don't know how much time you spend on there, but it's an absolute mess at the moment because people literally have too much time on their hands. Idle Thumbs have sent performative outrage through the roof. And a lot of what my book is about is the outrage that is superficial and kind of lacks any real ambition. There's so much of that now that people have got nothing but time. I saw people arguing the other day about the actual definition of butter a- actual argument i mean i'm interested what <laughs> what were they but it was it was it wasn't one or two people arguing it was a mass of people arguing about 5 6 days ago about when butter becomes margarine i tuned out okay. it wasn't Did you my learn area anything? of expertise or interest no i what fascinated me more so uh, than the content of the argument was the sheer volume of it. I think having written this book, I, I look at these things uh, in, in a slightly different way now. I'm, I'm very analytical when I look at outrage and it's, it's crazy just to see how these things catch fire. And even when they're as absurd as butter, how they catch fire and people are just jumping into the conversation. And there's been so much of that in recent weeks because as you say, we've got nothing but time. On the front cover of the book, it says, funny, nuanced and wonderful, says one of my favourite writers, John Ronson. That's quite an accolade, isn't it? Unreal. If that's the only review I get, I can die happy because I can at least frame the cover. And I will say it is quite Ronson-esque in its content, so I'm, I'm a big fan. So the inspiration for the book came from a piece that you wrote for The Guardian a few years ago, which, as all journalists know, you did not write the headline for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which you do point out in the book, so I thought I'd better, better mention that. But uh, it went viral, and the headline was, As a black gay woman, I have to be selective in my outrage, so should you. So can you tell me a little bit about that piece and, and how that sort of how the book came out of it? The year was 2018. It was the top of the year, and I was actually on holiday when I, when I started writing this. And as you should never do on holiday, I looked at my phone and I saw that Twitter was ablaze with outrage directed at H&M. I think a lot of people will remember this because it, it was like a watershed moment. Yeah, it when was it comes big, to, I remember it, yeah. 
to Twitter outrage. Mm. H&M had posted the image of a young black boy in their wild style range. And the, the black boy was wearing a jumper that said the coolest monkey in the jungle. Now, you don't need to have a master's in race relations to understand that the relationship between racism um, directed at black people and this idea of primates is is deep rooted. It's it's a really troublesome idea that a black person be referred to in, related to any animal. But but monkeys in particular, it's it's deep in our history. It's a, a very offensive in this context, though, I felt as though it had all been blown out of proportion. And I was like, he's just a kid in a monkey jumper. I've got a small child, young black boy who has like monkeys on his pajamas. I've never gone into depth and, and to analyze well, what does it what does it mean, though, that if that is taken into it into a, a different context, does it now become offensive? So I, I wrote the article and it was born out of frustration in that moment in that there's so much to be outraged by. Is this what we're investing our time in? And when I say we, I'm not just talking about black people that were up in arms. So many people were loudly and performatively angry about this H&M hoodie. And it just, it highlighted for me so much that is wrong with modern day outrage. And I started to write the article because I thought as a black person, even living in this time, which many people will think is a progressive time, as a black person, you encounter so many things that are triggering. As a woman, you encounter so many things that are triggering. As a gay person, you encounter so many things that are triggering. If I, as an amalgamation of all of those worlds, started responding to all of those triggering things, I wouldn't sleep. I would, I would go insane if I responded to anything with an undertone of homophobia, if I responded to every, anything that seemed slightly sexist, if I responded to every instance of implicit institutionalized racism, I would, I, I would do nothing else. So because of that, I felt that they almost needed a, a, a rallying call to say to people, there is so much to be outraged about. Are we actually going to spend our time on a $4.99 hoodie from H&M? And that, that was what the article was about, really. It was about how we are misdirecting our outrage. And I used the analogy of outrage as currency. And it's like, we're kind of spending in a really frivolous way with no return on our investment. And that our outrage should be used as an investment. It's, it's currency. It's, it's traded in so many ways, outrage, from it sells papers, it garners engagement. It's a real, real currency in uh, modern day communications. Let's not flush it down the drain. I struggle a bit at the moment because I'm outraged by quite a lot at the moment, right? I, I'm pretty outraged about the government most of the time. And I had a situation probably about a month, six weeks ago, where I posted something on Twitter, which went viral, uh, which is basically about people clapping for the NHS, which, I, by the way... Just want to say, if that's what you want to do, excellent. Have a lovely time, and I totally support that. And we all love the NHS. Lovely, right? This went a bit nuts. A lot of people agreed with me, but I got a lot of shit for it as well. I got a lot of shit for it. I have people calling me all of the bad words, Dotty, all of them. (laughs) I had someone... In the end, I was kind of like, do you know what? I, at the time 
was and am now eight months pregnant but i was like i'm seven months pregnant i don't actually need like can you all just fucking leave it now like do what you want to do kind of thing i had someone who said to me i was a bad mother for putting my unborn child in the way of twitter ire and stuff like that like it was it was insane the level of vitriol from just like bonkers people i think the sort of concept of the whole pylon thing is really interesting and we are like we do live in this really really divided kind of community at the moment and one of the things you sort of touch on in the book is about how these incidents where we go for people in that way are actually often not really about any kind of actual outrage they're about sort of almost like an extension of like the instagram persona what do you say a manifestation of vanity rather Mm -hmm. than an actual concern can you tell us a bit more about that yeah i think look there are so many reasons why people voice outrage and it's impossible to put them all under one umbrella because it's a nuanced thing. Some people are genuinely outraged about certain things. Some people feel that they've been given a platform, be that Twitter, be that Facebook, and that it's their obligation to use that platform. Some people just speak because they feel like they've been given this megaphone and I might as well use it. I've got a Twitter. I'm going to join in with the conversation. But there are a lot of things that you can gain from being outraged. And that isn't necessarily, or our pursuit of, of, of... these things isn't necessarily anything to do with change i always say since i've kind of first started writing this book and more so now than ever outrage should be rooted in a desire for something to change it should be i'm outraged because i think this should change or i think this needs to be like this or women should be getting paid more or you know it it should be rooted in some desire for progression otherwise you're just barking at a wall right but I find that so much of our modern outrage isn't actually rooted in any desire for anything other than vanity. Because if we're completely honest, being outraged about the right things makes you look fucking great. It does. There are so many things. You can apply this to, to, to most things. But let's just pluck. Let's t- take something figurative out of thin air. So if, say, an MP is caught paying for their pool with expenses Mm. yeah if you're an mp from an opposing party and you're very outraged on say twitter you position yourself as more honorable than that opposing mp you position yourself as more trustworthy than that mp you're not being outraged because you want mps to suddenly stop doing this Mm. you're doing it because it's self-pr and quite often we're pring ourselves when we're outraged, we, we're outraged to say, oh, I'm nothing like that. Or I'm outraged because I want it to be clear that I'm nothing like those guys. And you, you see this so, so often. And you may even notice it more now that so often people are outraged because of the picture it paints of them, as opposed to a new picture of society that they're trying to create. Mm. And I think that is what so much of social media outrage is rooted in just to be clear there are outrage can manifest itself in so many arenas in life what i'm really focusing on in this book in particular is the, the social media loud performative outrage which which often is self-serving yeah i mean i think a lot of it is as you say performative and it's weird isn't it because you kind of as someone 
who you know i make this podcast we're quite political on the podcast and you know we have a lot of opinions about a lot of things but it's kind of interesting because i think i mean i wasn't really outraged to be honest it was like a flippant comment and you know what do you know what that is what so much of these pylons are yeah so i i spoke to stephanie who was the first girl that tweeted about h&m so i sort of found her the first tweet that went out that sparked this outrage she was like i wasn't even outraged she was like i i was yeah. i was making a comment saying this is a little bit fucking weird you put a black boy in a monkey hoodie probably not the best decision it wasn't a call to arms she wasn't saying down with h&m but it then it just it's like wildfire it then the ripple effects are often so far skewed and she probably got a what lot the of original shit. person meant she got so much shit i don't want to ruin the book for you because she really does open up about what that experience was like for her being the catalyst is awful it like just on your mental health it is awful not many people are built for a social media onslaught even katie hopkins who i speak to in the book as well even somebody who by their very brand design pursues this struggles with it I mean, I want to I wanna come back to Katie Hopkins. So from my perspective, actually, there would be something in it for me by being frequently outraged because you do pick up more followers, you do get retweets, yeah. blah, 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 and I've got a podcast that I want people to listen to. So it works for Piers Morgan, as you say in the book. But do you feel an obligation also? Because you have this platform, do you feel as somebody with a, with a feminist platform that if there's something that is directly offensive to to women mm. do you not feel a, a duty to speak it depends so i i agree with you i think you need to pick your battles a little bit i think that there's no point being outraged by everything because as you say you could spend like your whole day being outraged by various different things so i i try to pick my battles but i think it's hard because i think the nature of social media is, is that it does sort of whip us all into a frenzy about everything It's so hard. It's so hard. And that's why I was, when I was writing the book, what I didn't want it to be was sort of a finger wagging. This is why your outrage is wrong. And this is why it could be better. Because that's not, that's not what I want this book to be. Because I think we all have a duty to use our voice. And I think outrage is, can be very, very effective. Outrage is the reason why women can vote. Outrage is the reason why segregation ended in America. It has been so progressive when channeled correctly. So what I don't want people to feel like with this book is it's me saying, oh, get over it, because that's, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. It's, it's not to get over it. It's about focusing on the things that you want changed. It's about channeling your outrage. Mm. It's about setting goals in place. It's about having an achievement in sight. I say we're outraged, but we don't know what we want to come of the hour. Where that often manifests itself to our detriment is tribalism, mm. which I, I speak about in the book as well. As women, we feel, even subconsciously, we feel obliged, many of us anyway, we feel obliged to speak up when there's something that undermines womankind. As black people, tribalism kicks in when donald trump says something which even has undertones of racism you feel obliged to speak up this tribalism it kind of it makes us feel like we need to fulfill an obligation every time Hmm. there's anything which is even subtly insulting to our tribe 
with Twitter at our fingertips, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have a go at that and I'm going to jump on that. And we feel this obligation to always speak up for our tribe. And at times we're devaluing the volume of our tribe by pouncing on everything. Because if there are five things in a week that Im- impact the gay, gay community, just as an, as an example, if there are five things in a week that are impacting us, be it real draconian plans for legislation, for example, that, it, that one thing would warrant the attention of the community more so than if the fifth thing was they've cast a straight man to play a gay man in a film. But we'd feel like we need to speak about all of these things. And it's like, hold on, you have to be tactical with your outrage, if we're being completely honest. And that is, again, that's not stifling mm. your voice. It's about channeling your voice. Disney casting... This was actually a real thing. They cast Jack Whitehall to do the the voice of a, a gay character. And there was uproar. And we have so many more mountains to climb in the gay community before we get to whether Jack Whitehall does or does not deserve to be a voice for a gay character. One of the th- things that you mentioned is a tweet by Alan Sugar, which was during the World Cup, where he compared, I think it was a Senegalese football Senegalese team. World Cup team to, yeah. like, yeah. To, like, dudes on the beach when he's on holiday. And, Selling watches, yeah, yeah. exactly, which was, like, undeniably just, a, like, a, a ridiculously racist and offensive thing to tweet. But um, I remember thinking at the time, like, I don't think he means to be malicious i think he's just a stupid old man Mm. at the time i spoke to a friend of mine about it who is black and he pointed out that it doesn't really matter whether or not it's malicious because it still hurts and if it doesn't get picked up on this sort of stuff kind of slides and you've got people like john barnes is quite interesting on stuff like this Uh, (laughs) no i want to get you started on john barnes especially now you've had that reaction because he often says particularly debates about racism that this stuff is sort of actually a lot more nuanced and he is lambasted all the time for the stuff he says do you think there is like an assumption that you should be complicit in outrage and i don't mean just in terms of you know not just in a sort of racist kind of debate but as you say you are you know for want of better words you're a triple threat dotty you're gay and you're <laughs> female as well so do you feel that there is a sense that you should be complicit in it and does that bother you just to address john barnes first of all this is why I'm always whenever I speak about my book I'm keen to reaffirm my stance which is one of empowerment I think the issue with someone like John Barnes is he kind of wants to subdue people and I think it's the absolute wrong way to go it's not about subduing people it's not saying don't be outraged about this be outraged about that it's not about me saying this is not worth your time and this is. It's about me saying, okay, this is my interpretation of what's worth my time and what isn't. And I implore you to do the same, you know? Mm. And I think the issue with John Barnes is he's saying, let's all calm down about this. This is, we're being silly here. This isn't offensive to black people. You cannot speak for all black people. Mm. I I cannot speak for all gay black women. I can't. Even though we may tick the same boxes and we have similar top trumps cards when it comes to the game of outrage, 
we cannot speak for each other. We can at times become united in our cause, but what is a priority to you may not be a priority to me. So I think the worst thing you can do, and I'm conscious to not actually ever do it, is to say, park this and pursue that. Whenever I even give examples, I say, in, like, for me, I don't give a shit about if Kim Kardashian is wearing fake tan that is 12 shades too dark for her to make her come across as if she's more melanin-infused than she is. That is not a battle that I'm going to pick. That's mm. not a hill that I'm going to die on. If it is for you, then, mate, go for it. But have some ambition in mind. What, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to topple the Kardashian empire? If so, focus your attentions on that. Focus your efforts on it. Don't put six outraged tweets on your timeline and then move on because you've just wasted you've, you've wasted your own voice you've wasted the currency in your own outrage because you're just going to turn around and do it again in a few weeks so i don't i don't think i feel compelled in any way to be complicit i think for me it's important that every battle i fight every instance of of outrage that i voice is genuinely rooted in something I feel needs to be changed. And for me personally, I don't feel the need to change the opinions of individuals. For me, it doesn't warrant my outrage if there's an, an individual in the arse crack of town in Tennessee who I'll never meet. If their opinion is different to mine, there is no way in hell I would ever have an argument with you on the internet. Do you know what I mean? Mm. For me, the, the issues are the institutions. Rather than taking on, say, a Katie Hopkins, who to me is a branch, I would say, OK, what are we doing to hold the institutions accountable for giving her a voice? How are we cutting down the tree? Not how am I hitting this branch, but what are we doing that is going to ensure that an outrage monger like Katie Hopkins doesn't have a platform to... to pedal hate because she is one person we've we've turned her into this sort of outrage juggernaut by interacting with her so much so no i i, I don't feel a sort of a need to be complicit because but i, do you I, feel I an I'm, expectation? I'm very clear yes so that's, that's like from, a completely different thing from within um, your various communities do you feel an expectation that you will be complicit i think there's especially when you're in a position of influence you feel a duty you feel a duty to speak up for every injustice you feel a duty to address every insult you feel it is your place to speak up for people who don't have your platform i think a this is where a lot of i think a lot of celebrities go wrong um in this um, area because quite often they're speaking on things which they have absolutely you know, they're in no way qualified to speak about things sometimes and you'll get you'll get celebrities chiming in on things because they're like okay this this affects white women and as a white woman I think I'm going to speak up on it and it's like you don't you do not have to single-handedly fight every battle and as soon as we realize that the sooner we will will be more effective with our outrage and we'll live more peaceful lives mm. I think we Quite often we drive ourselves insane because we feel we feel obliged. We feel it's our duty. I have to address this. I have to speak up on that. And I think when when we are being outraged, we also have 
a duty to ourselves to protect our own peace. Yeah. And I think, I think at times we, we really neglect that. Mm. I think especially people who have built careers out of being outspoken often really neglect their own mental health and they sacrifice their own peace because they are set on being this mouthpiece. I mean, I've just written down here, Katie Hopkins. That's that's, that's Katie, all I've written. Katie, Katie Hopkins. Hopkins. Because you spoke to her for the book. You you actually spoke to Katie Hopkins. And I the am Hopkins. intrigued. How did that go down? Katie Hopkins, the enigma that is KH, as she signs off her emails. I um, love that, by the way. I love the way that she signed off her emails <laughs> in this really, like sort of you know jolly kind of way (laughs) where to begin with katie hopkins so when i set out writing this book i wanted to explore the various of outrage to kind of take us on a mini outrage safari so let's speak to somebody who's been the catalyst let's speak to somebody who is actually out there trying to affect change and i spoke to lots of people but i thought it is fundamental that I speak to an outrage monger. Mm. These are the people who thrive on our outrage. These are the people well that don't want you it. to read my book. Yeah, the people that wouldn't want you to read my book are the people who want you to be outraged by everything they type, everything they say, because they've built an empire because on it. Because there is literally commercial value for them in provoking outrage, which is why I never retweet. Piers Morgan, he pisses me off all the time. Although he's been quite sensible recently on Twitter. He has been. He has been a bit sensible, which is re- making me feel really uneasy. Yeah, it's, um, it's troubling. But, but there yeah. are there are outrage mongers, um, and these are people that profit on outrage. And just to be clear, these these people can exist on on the left and the right. This yeah. isn't me just saying the these are the the Katie Hopkins super conservative borderline white supremacist dare i say navara media owen jones like there's there's plenty of left-wing look jamila jamil is an outrage monger yes yeah engagement boosts her her profile and she gathers increased engagement by being outraged about things it's it is a tried and tested business model in the social media age there's a reason why Katie Hopkins is one of the few people you really remember their full name from The Apprentice, right? Many people even forget that she was on The Apprentice. She's become an entity unto, unto itself. And that's because she has built a brand of hate that we continue to feed. And it was very important to me to try and get behind that mask because it's, it's my belief that it's a mask. And I don't doubt that she's kind of method acting now and she's convinced herself that these are her views <laughs> and that she's kind of lost in the in the yeah. the character that she plays yeah but i do believe that brand katie hopkins as we know it was a business decision oh yeah no therefore i, I thought it was <clears throat> it was very important to to speak to her and do you know what speaking to katie hopkins although at times very difficult on a personal level because I'm trying to I'm trying to speak to you. I'm not trying to have an argument with you. So sometimes you have to just give them enough rope. Um, but with Katie Hopkins, that interview in in my book for me is a real eye opener, a real eye opener. But I'm genuinely intrigued. Like, what was she like? Katie Hopkins is an enigma, and I'll tell you why. So when she's speaking to me, 
I am not an audience, so you don't need to be full Katie Hopkins, right? Mm. But then you perhaps remember that this is going to be in a book and then you dial it up. And because of that, our conversation, and I, and I, I, I kind of walk you through in the book, I really walk you through the shifts in our conversation because I, I, I feel as though the, the, the conversations I had with, with Katie Hopkins tell you everything you need to know about the person that she is and the person she performs as because they're two different people. As well as Katie Hopkins, you talked to like a bunch of, I would say, fairly outrageous characters, one of whom is Rachel Dolezal, which I, I don't know if listeners will remember. She's sort of a disgraced former NAACP, I don't know, activist, I guess. I think she actually worked activist, for them, yeah. didn't she? She worked for them. Yeah, and she claimed to be black, and she is not. And she's, she's 100% white. She is fully white. She is fully white. And uh, it's, she's an interesting case because I would argue that she was actually doing quite good stuff. You mm. know, she her heart was definitely in the right place in some respects. She wasn't seeking to profit from it. But she also, to me, presents as someone who is not necessarily that well. In, yes. in her mind. And I totally understand why what she did was offensive and problematic. But I do sort of wonder, and I think this is where you sort of come down as well, what there was to be gained by going after her in the way that the world did. And I think this is sort of the central point of your book, really, because that served as a bit of a distraction from other things that were quite serious, like the Charleston killings that happened at sort of the same yeah. kind of time. I mean, I also recognise that perhaps as a white woman, maybe I wouldn't see what's to be, you know, there are different perspectives on these things. So do you think that there is a bit of a danger that there's a kind of policing of outrage as well? So people decide what you're allowed to be outraged about. Yeah, and I think there are going to be those voices and there are going to be people that use my book as a tool to help them police outrage. Cause they'll say, if you, if you turn to chapter four here, it does clearly say that Rachel Dozel, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we need to always be wary of, of gatekeepers in these scenarios because outrage is outrage is self-expression, right? And when we lose our freedom of speech, we've lost everything right but that in itself is another can of worms because kay hopkins would argue that she's just exercising her freedom of speech right so this look it's a really it's a really nuanced thing and there's no soundbite that kind of can sum up how we need to approach outrage i think we need to just be more effective ragers we're just we're very ineffective mm. and that is proven with rachel dozel because rachel dozel's name is etched in history. M more people, if you use social media and you are somewhat dialed into the zeitgeist, you know the name Rachel Dozel. Far fewer people remember the name Dylan Roof. At the same time, as you say, that Rachel Dozel was outed as a race faker, Dylan Roof went into a church in Charleston and murdered its black congregation in cold blood. His name should re be remembered more than Rachel Dozel's. And I think that kind of sums up a problem with, with modern outrage. Rachel Dozel's name survived years. She was in a Netflix special 
last year. The documentary, yeah, which is fascinating. In, about by the four, way. Yeah. about four four years mm. after the after the event. Rachel Dozel's name is in songs. She's she's referenced so much that she kind of goes down in history for that period in in time, because there was so much noise around somebody faking their race, but there was less noise about somebody who was seeking to obliterate a race, which for me is cause for concern. In summary, the point that I'm taking from the book is you're not against outrage per se. I'm you for just, it. You just want people to do it better and, yeah. <laughs> and do it with more meaning. And do the work exactly. as well, not just... Being outraged isn't just like, oh, this thing has really pissed me off, type it into yeah. Twitter or whatever, 280 characters and you're done. Outraged, like, you have to do the work if you want to properly outrage, be... Our outrage needs to be offline as, ma- as much as it is online. And another thing that was important to me with the book is I explored some sort... Because there's neuroscience, there's, like, real explorations into why we enjoy or why we are compelled to be outraged online. And for me, that was kind of the most fascinating part about writing the book was really getting underneath the skin of our outrage and figuring out, I kind of, I figure a lot out while I write the book. I'm kind of on this journey with the reader. I figure out so much, including what we gain from it. Why? Reasons that we don't even realize why we are engaging, what it does to us when we get 500 retweets. The, the endorphins that are let yeah. off from that and why it encourages us to say, maybe try and be more outraged next time and, and, and maybe be a little bit more eloquent next time. Will I get 600 retweets, you know? So it's, it's, a, it's a multifaceted thing and I, I, and I hope people kind of enjoy exploring it with me. I have to say, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's a fascinating subject matter and I think that the way you write about it is, as John Ronson says, it's funny and nuanced, Dotty, and indeed wonderful. It's great, basically. So, Thank you so, so much. So, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking is published on the 9th of July by Bloomsbury and presumably available at all good bookshops and indeed online. Dottie, where can we follow you on social media so that we cannot be outraged by anything you do? You can follow me being responsibly outraged uh, at amplify.amplifydot. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.